Uh, morning, uh, my name's Jonathan. Uh, I have the real privilege of leading Church Central across our three different sites, uh, here in the west, also up in the north, uh, and down in the south of the city as well. Uh, and by way of introduction, I just want you to know that, uh, actually, I'm a multi-trillionaire. Um, I'm not showing off at this point. Uh, I'm merely telling you that I actually possess 10 trillion dollars. This is an authentic banknote, 10 trillion dollars. Now, if you were to look closely at this note, uh, it's actually quite a good example of why we're doing this whole series, The Big Story. You see, unfortunately, this 10 trillion dollar note was issued by the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. Uh, If I possessed this note 30 years ago, uh, when the Zimbabwean dollar was actually stronger than the US dollar, uh, I probably wouldn't be here right now. I'd be living the life of a king. But sadly, hyperinflation in Zimbabwe has rendered this note pretty much worthless. It's kind of a picture, really, of how all of us can live our lives. You see, it's very easy to live our lives for things that actually don't really matter. As a church leader, I get to talk to all kinds of people who are grappling with the realization they've been living pretty much for a currency that isn't worth what they thought it was. It's like wherever you look, people are rushing around, busying their lives with things that sound really very important, but when you take a step back and listen to what God is saying, actually, sadly, tragically, they're missing the big story. I'm hoping that if you're not a Christian, you'll find this preaching series that we've just begun really very, very helpful for you. We're we're week two now. If you missed week one, you can have a listen on our website or on iTunes. Basically, we're setting out to cover the whole Bible in just 20 weeks, zooming out, seeing the big picture, seeing the big story. And if you're not a Christian, is a great way to get to grips with the whole message of the Bible. You see, the Bible is as much for you as it is for anyone else. It isn't something that God gave to the world for Christians only. No, it's God's message to every man, every woman, and every child. And this series is just a great chance to find out the message of the world's best-selling book. Now, often, people who are new to the church or new to the Christian faith they can fall into one of two traps. Sometimes they say, well, I'm not sure I'm all that interested in Christianity because I've met Christians and they just seem very ordinary. They seem pretty much like me. Uh, I thought they'd be a, a little bit more impressive perhaps. That's exactly the point. Part of grasping the big story of the Bible is you getting it that God chooses ordinary people just like you. Now, the other extreme that people often fall into is kind of like the opposite of that. They say, well, yeah, I'd love to follow Jesus, but uh, I just couldn't live the kind of life that Christians are meant to live. But again, as we zoom out, we begin to see that actually God is interested in people who are simply humble enough to admit that they're just nobodies and they're willing to follow the greatest somebody of all. So if you're not a Christian, really this series is for you. And if you are a Christian, don't worry, this series is also incredibly important for you as well. Because over the years, I think the term Christian has lost a lot of its value. A bit like the Zimbabwean dollar, it has become hyper-inflated. 
So, for example, in the 2001 census, 72% of people in the UK ticked the box saying that I'm a Christian. But 72% of the UK certainly don't live as though they're Christians. It's like it's become very easy just to tick a box and say, I'm a Christian. And what we're going to discover this morning is what it really means to be a Christian. What it really means to follow God, believe in Him, and live your life for Him. If you're around last week, hopefully you'll remember that we learned that the Bible begins with God. If you like, the Bible is essentially His autobiography. The whole story starts with God creating the world out of nothing. And as part of his creation, he makes human beings who are designed to be completely dependent on him. And we looked at how human history, even in the very earliest centuries, was all about people either submitting to God as creator of all and living their lives to worship him, or forgetting about God and basically living for themselves. Kind of, I I don't care about God. It's all about me. And we ended last week with Noah leaving the ark with the mother of all to-do lists and simply downing his tools and raising his hands in worship to God. He he leads his family, the, the only family left on the earth, and acknowledging that God is God and they're not. But sadly, as we rejoin the story today, we're going to see it doesn't last long. Within just a couple of chapters of them leaving the ark, Noah's descendants turn away from worshipping God and again start worshipping themselves. They return to living as though it's all about them. Genesis 11, they hatch this plan to construct a huge tower that's really just a monument to how great they are. They gather together and they say this, verse 4 of Genesis 11, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Not about God, it's all about them. But God thwarts their plans by scattering them across the world, separating them by distance and by language. And then immediately he starts scouring the earth for someone to work with, a suitable successor to Noah. And here's the message of Genesis 12 to 50. This is what it is all about. This is the big picture. God is determined to have a people, to have a family on earth who know Him, who love Him, who walk with Him, and are blessed by Him. That's the big picture. But the people... God chooses, as we're going to see, are really very surprising. As we're going to see again and again this morning, God chooses to use nobodies who believed and risked everything to follow him. It's like none of the heroes of the faith in Genesis were the obvious choice. But if you think about it, this also makes perfect sense. You see, God chooses complete nobodies because those kinds of people find it a whole lot easier to admit that God is God and really they're not. So at the beginning of Genesis 12, God finds the person who is going to found the family of God. And as as I've said already, he is really a very, very surprising choice. His name is Abraham and God chooses him not just in spite of the fact that he's a nobody. God chooses him because 
he's a nobody. You, you, you kind of think God's going to choose the most impressive person to be his follower, but he settles for someone who's happy to admit that God is God and they're not. Let me tell you a little bit about Abraham. For starters, he's an idolater. He's not a solution to the problem. He is, in fact, part of the problem. Joshua 24, verse 2, recalls that long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river Euphrates and worshipped other gods. Abraham's family worships creatures instead of their creator. What's more, Abraham is married to his own sister. Now, that is never a good idea, but that's what Abraham does. He's married to his sister and is so messed up with his thinking that when his sister can't conceive, he sleeps with her slave girl. Yet, despite all of that, the Lord chooses him to be the founder of the family of God. They need to understand just a bit more about ancient culture to fathom a few more of Abraham's many shortcomings. Because I'm a 21st century Westerner, I love my two sons equally. When Helen and I finally die, they'll get 50% each. Uh, 50% of not very much isn't worth getting excited about, but we will treat them exactly the same. We love them both exactly the same. But the ancient world was a very, very different place. The firstborn son was everything. Father's other children were also rans. Abraham wasn't just not the firstborn. He was about 60 years younger than his older brother. In other words, he was an afterthought, maybe a mistake, an absolute nobody. Now, if you had to gloss over all of that stuff, ultimately, there's really only one thing you need in a man who's going to found the family of God, the ability to have children. Otherwise, it's going to be a very short-lived family. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were childless in their 70s. Hebrews 11, verse 12, doesn't pull its punches when it tells us that they were as good as dead. I mean, Abraham's like the worst possible person for God to choose, except for one thing. Got to understand this. If you think you are not good enough to be a follower of God, you are missing the point completely. The whole message of Genesis is that if you admit you are not good enough, you are good enough. God isn't looking for followers who are exceptional or brilliant. He's looking for people who are willing to gamble everything on the fact that God is God and they're not. And what Abraham lacks in natural credentials, he more than makes up for in faith. Faith is basically gambling everything on God's reliability. And Abraham gambles it all on God. I mean, there's this one occasion when God comes to him and asks him to change his name from Abraham to Abraham. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, what's the big deal in that? I mean, it's just adding a couple of extra letters. Here's why it was such a big deal. Abraham means father of many or father of multitudes. And so God is asking this childless pensioner to declare to all of his neighbors, family, and friends that he has changed his name to father of many, father of multitudes. 
It's like one of the most embarrassing things for him to do. But in Romans 4, it tells us he believed that if God calls something that is not, then it is. And so he called himself Abraham long before he had a child. This is what God loves about him. Here's someone who hears God's word and doesn't argue with it, doesn't try and rationalize it, doesn't doubt it, doesn't think it's fashionable to disagree with it or twist it to something more acceptable, but simply says, no, you're God and so I'm just going to trust you. God makes some crazy promises to Abraham and Abraham believes him. Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. If you want to be a Christian, this is what it means. It's not about playing it safe. It's actually the opposite. I mean, it's only people who think that being a Christian is just all about living this squeaky clean life and not risking getting it wrong. Now, the Christian life is all about risk-taking. It's all about gambling everything on God. Sometimes you hear people say, well, Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. Rubbish. Since following Jesus, my life has been one non-stop gamble on the greatness and trustworthiness of God. That's what it means to follow God. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're thinking, just play it safe the whole time, Humbly, I'd say to you, I think your Christianity is a bit like one of those Zimbabwean dollars. It it might be the same word, but I'm kind of struggling to recognize its value. You see, being a Christian means risking everything to follow God. God comes to Abraham. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees, which is the most civilized city in world history thus far. And God says to him, turn your back on all your gods, on your city, become a nomad, go to a new land, and guess what? I'm not even going to tell you where it is. You're just going to have to follow me every day. It's like when you're in your car, and you are following your sat-nav, and it seems to be taking you in completely the wrong direction. I tend to do is turn it off and stuff it under my seat and uh, I know best, I'm a man, I'm sure I'll get there anyway. Abraham kept trusting the voice of God. If you want to be a Christian, this is what it means. It means not relying on your own understanding. It means relying on God every single day. It says this in Hebrews 11 verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. You might be in a situation at the moment where you're looking for God to guide you in some way. It doesn't feel like you're getting a whole lot of answers from him. Sometimes God doesn't guide until you go. Sometimes being a Christian involves trusting in who God is, even though he hasn't yet given you all of the answers. Abraham gambled everything on the faithfulness of God, and he reaped the reward. When he was aged 100, the Lord finally gave him a son. And you won't be surprised to learn that Abraham's son Isaac is an absolute nobody too. 
He wasn't actually the firstborn because, as we've seen already, Abraham had gone and been a bit of an idiot, had sex with his wife's slave girl. So Isaac uh, isn't actually the firstborn. Worse than that, he's a rubbish husband. Uh, At one point, uh, they they go and live in the land of the Philistines. uh, And because Isaac's wife is pretty attractive, Isaac is worried that the king of the Philistines will kill him so that he can take his wife into his harem. So Isaac pretends that his wife is actually his sister, probably inspired by his dad who actually did marry his sister. Uh, And he pretends that his wife's actually his sister. So if the king wants her, he won't do anything nasty to Isaac. Sure enough, the king takes Isaac's wife. And rather than protesting, Isaac's like, well, at least I've got my health. He's a pretty rubbish husband. He's a pretty bad dad as well. He's got two sons, you may have heard of them, Esau and Jacob, and he makes it pretty clear that he loves Esau and can't stand the sight of Jacob. He's never going to be asked to run a parenting course, or a marriage course for that matter. He hasn't really got a whole lot going for him, except for the fact he believes God. Despite his many failings, he believes God and risks everything to follow him. In Genesis 27, Isaac says to his sons Jacob and Esau, I'm now going to pass on a blessing. Whichever one of you two I pray for is going to inherit all of the great promises of God to bring a saviour from your descendants. Now we read it. We tend to focus on the fact that Isaac is duped into blessing the wrong son with all the promises that God had made to his father Abraham. But Hebrews 11.20 focuses on the fact that he blessed his children with those promises at all. It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Isaac had many flaws. He was a bit of a sad character, really. But his heart was full of faith to see the fulfillment of what God had spoken over his family. It's like he took this whole praying, a blessing on his son, really seriously. How do you take prayer? When you hear that there's a church prayer meeting, do you think, oh, it's for someone else, it's for the keen ones, I'm busy. Or do you think, you know what, prayer really matters. What a privilege, I, I, I get an opportunity to pray something of the blessing of God into different situations. What could be more significant than that? I, I get this opportunity to Remind myself of some of the promises of God and pray them into being. Don't want to miss the opportunity to do that prayer. So vitally important. When you read the Bible and you do stumble across these great promises from God, do you doubt them? Or do you think, God's word says it, so it must be true. I'm therefore going to live my life accordingly. Look at Isaac. This is what it means to follow God. He's someone who basically admits he's a nobody but believes God and takes some pretty substantial risks to follow him. Most amazing story in Isaac's life is in Genesis 22. Isaac goes with his dad to make a sacrifice in the region of Moriah. Interestingly, Moriah has a famous outcrop known as Calvary. This is the hill where Jesus would be crucified 2,100 years later. 
Now we tend to focus on Abraham's faith in offering Isaac as a sacrifice to God, but the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that this whole event took place when Isaac was probably aged 25 years old, and his father was aged 125. Now think about it. When a 25-year-old fights a 125-year-old, there's only ever going to be one winner. And so Genesis 22 is as much about Isaac's faith as it is about Abraham's. Because at any moment, Isaac could have overpowered his dad. At any point, he could have seen what was happening and gone, I mean, come on, this isn't going to happen. But here's how it plays out. His dad tells Isaac that they're going to climb Mount Moriah and offer a sacrifice. And as they're climbing, Isaac asks his dad, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham replies, don't worry, son, God will provide. Now, Isaac's not stupid here. He would probably have guessed there's only one option if God doesn't provide. And yet, he keeps walking up Mount Moriah, just as Jesus kept walking up Calvary to be crucified. Isaac carried the wood, just as Jesus carried the cross when he was crucified. And Isaac lies down willingly on the altar because he trusts his father when he assures him that God will supply the lamb for the burnt offering. And sure enough, God intervenes by providing a lamb to die in Isaac's place. Just as Jesus, the lamb of God, would die in our place on that same mountain just over 2,000 years later. Isaac risked everything even his very life, to follow God. Let's not today devalue the word Christian. Following Jesus means taking up our cross daily. It means every day putting him first and doing what he says rather than what we want. It's all about gambling everything on God's faithfulness every single day of your life. Come on, let's be who we're called to be. Whatever you do, don't devalue what it means to have faith in God. Isaac has a son called Jacob. And you're going to find this really hard to believe. Jacob was a nobody. In fact, he was probably the biggest nobody of them all. He's not the firstborn son, and he's an absolute rogue. He takes advantage of his blind father, he double-crosses his older brother, and he tries to wrestle God into submission instead of bowing down before him and worshipping him. But Jacob believes God and risks everything to follow him. We're told that while Esau, his older brother, goes out hunting, Jacob stays at home meditating on the promises which God made to his father. And although his actions were undoubtedly wrong, the Bible praises him for wanting to inherit the promises of God. It tells us that his scheming and his wrestling were acts of flawed but fervent faith. Yeah, he reaps years of pain and sorrow because he tries to follow God the wrong way. He ends his life as gloriously as Abraham and Isaac before him. Hebrews 11, 21 tells us that by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped. You know, God doesn't expect you to be impressive. He simply wants you to respond to his promises with genuine faith. Returning to the story, Jacob's son Joseph 
is funnily enough a nobody too. He isn't the firstborn, he's the 11th born. And he annoys his brothers so much they try to kill him. Anyone got a brother? You're tempted to, to kill them? Well, Joseph's brother's just like that. Uh, he, he has these dreams from God, just keeps boasting about them. They finally gets too much for his brothers, and so they end up faking his death, selling him as a slave. It's like his whole life falls apart, but he keeps on believing God. There's an occasion when his master's wife attempts to seduce him. His response? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And when she's miffed and has him thrown into prison, he still doesn't grow resentful towards God. Later on, when Pharaoh's baker and butler have these troubled dreams, Joseph doesn't say, don't talk to me about dreams. I had dreams once and look where they landed me. No, he puts his faith in God. And because he trusts God, even in adversity, Joseph ends up being summoned to stand before Pharaoh. Pharaoh is like the most powerful ruler in the world. He can just click his fingers and execute anyone he wants. Pharaoh summons Joseph, describes to him a dream that he's had, and asks whether Joseph can interpret it. Joseph's response? No, sorry, I can't. But God can. Which is really a wonderful restatement of what it means to be a Christian today. I can't, but God can. He's the most powerful man in the world. Joseph simply says, no, I can't despite the fact he could get executed for saying that. He explains, Pharaoh, you're the the most powerful man in the world, but you've got to understand that there's one who is more powerful still, and his name is God. He's the one who's given you these dreams because he wants to communicate with you. He wants to speak to you. I mean, talk about taking risks. But it goes well for Joseph. He ends up becoming the Egyptian prime minister and saving not only his family, but pretty much the the most powerful nation in the world at that time. You know, when we talk uh, as a church about our next step events, you might have uh, picked up one of our term planners uh, and there's a a little kind of icon with some steps and it says, what's the next step? talk about our next step events. They're they're events for you to invite your friends to, to take a a step closer to finding out about God. We talk about our Alpha course, a number of weeks just exploring some of the basic claims of Christianity or balty and big questions, kind of a step back from that, just uh, some of the kind of big questions out there uh, and showing that Christianity does have something to say uh, about them. We talk about these next step events. It's really easy if you're a Christian to think, well, I really hope other people invite their friends along because there's no way I'm going to take that kind of a risk with the people I know. Being a Christian is all about taking risks. It's about trusting in God's faithfulness. It's about speaking up for God whatever the consequences. I don't know, maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I really want to go on an Alpha course or this brought in big questions, whatever that is. I, I don't want to open up about what I believe. Listen, you'll only discover God if you start opening up and admitting that maybe you haven't got all the answers and perhaps the world doesn't revolve around you and possibly there is something or someone bigger than you. The message of Genesis 12 to 50 
is that you're a nobody in need of a somebody. It it all happened nearly 4,000 years ago, but it is still massively, massively relevant for all of us today. So I just want to try and help you respond to it. First of all, if you're a Christian, they're loving it. Uh, If if you're a Christian, (laughs) a bit more of that from you, really. Uh, First of all, if you're a Christian, this is for you. Yes! (laughs) Gone to Genesis a follower of God is basically a nobody who believes and risks everything to follow God. Some of you, you're sitting there and in your heart of hearts you still think you're a somebody. You're actually quite offended by the whole idea that you're not better than the people around you. You're not. None of us are. It's like before God, none of us can stand. So some people this morning, you just need to humbly confess to God, I'm a nobody desperately in need of you. Maybe that's not your problem. Maybe you're painfully aware of all your failings and you struggle to see how God could ever accept you. But God would say to you that the things that you think perhaps disqualify you actually qualify you. The whole basis of the Christian faith is grace. It's us getting what we don't deserve. God's amazing grace is freely available to you right now. Maybe I've told those stories of families just going a bit wrong and maybe that resonates with you. Maybe you have suffered abuse at the hands of your family, maybe physically, maybe emotionally. Maybe it's left you feeling pretty rubbish about yourself. You might feel like a bit of a nobody really. This message is for you. You get an opportunity to be part of the family of God. Although I'm talking about being a nobody, actually, that there is nothing more significant, nothing that gives more dignity and honor than being a son or a daughter of God. It's not like you've been called to grovel in the dust the whole time. No, there's honor, there's dignity in knowing God. He gives massive honor, massive favor, blessing to you. There's grace for you right now. Others maybe are doubting things. There's such grace and patience from God towards those who doubt. But ultimately, a Christian is someone who believes. And right now, God is calling you to put your faith, to put your trust, to put your confidence in him. Now, I think this is perhaps the big one in our culture. We're we're so risk-averse, aren't we? We live in a culture that tries to minimize risk, And God says to you, if you want to follow me, if you really want to follow me, it's a risky path. I'm going to ask you to do things that you're not going to want to do. And I want you to say, like Isaac, that I'm still going to follow you. I'm effectively going to lay it all down on the altar. There's stuff that I really don't want you putting your finger on and saying no to. But ultimately, you're the creator I'm just a creature and I submit to you. I'll I'll follow you wherever you take me. I believe he's calling you right now to follow him. I'll ask you, what what is God saying to you? What is God calling you to do? What what needs to change in your life? Maybe at work, maybe in your family, maybe with your finances. How can you take more risks, step out more in faith, following God because that's what he's calling you to do today.